The Sports Career Podcast, episode 312. How can leadership improve equality in the football industry? another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in coaching and also the football industry. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Kelly Lindsay. Kelly is a professional coach where she has been the women's football national team coach for Morocco and Afghanistan. And currently, she is the director of performance at Lewis FC. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Kelly as a podcast special guest on the show. In today's episode, she's going to share with you her sports grid journey and explain to you why leadership is vital with regards to improving equality in the football Kelly, it's industry. such a joy to have you on the Sports Grid podcast. Out of interest, can you share to listeners your sports career journey? When did it all start? Um, well, one, great to be here. Thanks, Ed. Always love having a chat with you. I think like many people, my sports career started at a very young age. I was four years old. I was being dragged out to my brother's, all of his sporting events, but soccer was one of them. And I just love the the idea of people. And this is, I, I probably should have been an ice hockey or American football player, but I love the idea of people smashing into each other and tackling. And you know, in the old days, the grass was long, it was muddy, and little boys are sliding around, tackling each other and rolling in the mud. And I think that's really what inspired me to get into football was the physical contact, the dirtiness. I enjoyed that. <laughs> so, Paint that picture to the listeners with regards to your sort of football player career journey. And then we'll talk about the coaching journey itself. Playing career, I grew up in a place, Omaha, Nebraska. Not many people know about it, but it definitely was not a hotbed of soccer talent. We were definitely an American football, baseball, basketball uh, kind of state. So I was very fortunate and lucky to grow up in, maybe have the talent to be scouted and be seen and Around the age of 13, I started to get noticed for like our regional teams and our national teams. Um, at that age, I was also very lucky because the U16 national team program was just starting in the country. So I was one of the first players to get to join that. So before that, it was mostly just senior. And now the country was starting to build the youth national teams, which I think was absolutely um um, immeasurable in developing U.S. soccer because at a very young age, they had a large pool of talent from across the country. So I played in the U16 national team and then into the U21s. Um, around 16, I started to get into the senior women's national team and training camps, which, you know, I didn't get tons of caps and I didn't win all these medals. But I think that my life and my career was ever changed by at a very young age, I was being influenced and taught and matured by a senior group of players who really cared about people and cared about the team and cared about the culture of U.S. women's soccer. Um, so I'll always look back and feel like that time with the U.S. women's team 
absolutely changed who I was as a person because I got that influence at a very young age. I went on to play collegiately and then got drafted into the first women's professional league in the U.S., um, played for Bay Area Cyber Rays is what we were called at the time. Um, and we won the first ever women's championship uh, in the WSA at the time. So that's about sums up the playing career. My career was was cut quite short due to injuries. So uh, I had 10 knee surgeries in 10 years. So I learned how to adapt and evolve. <laughs> we're going to touch on that with the adapting side. I want to go back in time a little bit when you were 16 and you said it was really significant with the national women's team. Like, was that the moment from a decision standpoint? You're like, no, this is what I want to do to thrive, to be a professional football player. That internal belief and desire like from a concentration standpoint I'm just curious forget about the injuries then I'm just trying to explain to the listeners that people who are like know what they want to do have clear clarity with their decision so I'm just curious at the age of 16 was that that trigger with that decision yeah there's probably a couple things there was you know at five years old I remember sitting on the edge of my bed and looking at a poster on my wall and my dad came in and asked me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to play for that team one day pointing at the poster. And he sat down he looked at it and he was like, well, then you better get working. And that was the U S men's national soccer team. We didn't have a women's national soccer team when I was young. So I think that was a very pivotal moment for two reasons. One, I was a girl and I dreamt of being on the men's national team. And my father in that moment didn't tell me I couldn't or I shouldn't, or I wouldn't. He just told me to start working and that stuck with me still to this day. I'll never forget because as I finally grew up and learned what a father could say to a daughter in that moment, I couldn't be more proud of what my dad did for me, whether he knew it or not. He, he absolutely changed the trajectory of my life because he put a seed in my brain that I wasn't anything but capable of doing whatever I wanted in life and dreaming as big as I wanted. So I think that was really powerful and it really probably hit me when I was a professional athlete to look back on that moment and realize that he helped influence that. As far as the women's national team and sort of that age, if I'm honest, it, there wasn't professional athletes making money at the time that I was hitting like 13 to 16, but I knew what I wanted to be was the best I could possibly be at whatever it was I was gonna do. I really didn't know. I dreamt of being a physiotherapist. I dreamt of being a teacher. Um, I dreamt of being an adventurer. Um, I didn't know what that was, but it was just, I didn't know what career I wanted. And I think that's really important for people is you don't have to know exactly what you want to be when you quote unquote grow up. But if you always want to be your best and you always want to try to like get that 1% more and like you're challenging yourself, not yourself against others every day from a very young age, I was aiming to be the best I could be. I didn't care who anybody else was. And that was quite significant because the first time I went into women's national team camp and I played against Mia Hamm, there was a group of us 16-year-olds playing and everyone was nervous. And I remember playing against Mia and Michelle Akers, who were obviously superstars of the time. And as a 16-year-old, being on the same pitch with them and learning from them was unbelievable. But I didn't view it as, oh my God, I hope to be Mia Hamm someday. I viewed it as on this day, I'm going to be better than Mia Hamm or I'm like, I'm going to be my best against Mia Hamm. That's what I said to myself. Just be your best. You have an opportunity. Don't miss it. She'll probably beat you and meg you and score on you, but just be your best up against her best. And then let's see where it takes you in life. And from that camp, I'll never forget. It was like the second ball played in and I went up against Michelle Akers trying to 
you know, get into, I was a defender. She was a striker come onto her backside. And I ran into her like it was a brick wall and I fell flat on my ass and just thought, oh my God. So this is the women's game. So this is the elite level. And I love that at a young age to get beat up, to, to be put in my place, to be very humbled. And it just made me every day work to like be a little bit better and strive every day to hopefully get to the best I could possibly be and never setting a ceiling or a boundary on my life or my my next step. And still to this day, people say, what are you going to do next? I'm like, whatever life gives me, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I'm just going to I just do my best every day and whatever opens up next. That's what I'll do next. I need a timeout because when <laughs> I hear you on stages, when I speak to you, there's this energy of you through that Michelle Akers scenario or story. How did it improve your attitude, which has supported you now reflecting? Yeah, I think there's two words that just like live on my brain about attitude and it's being humble and hungry. And I think when you live your life humble and hungry, you're always striving to figure out how to just be slightly better every single moment of every single day. But it's not a pressure. I don't feel pressure. I don't feel anxiety or stress over it. I feel passionate. I feel excited. I know that every time I do something good I could do it great every time I do something great I could do it excellent like I just love that life gives us the opportunity to every day wake up fresh and start again and be the best that we can be I I tell people this and they don't all believe me but it is very true I go to bed every night and I just like put the day to rest and I breathe and I think and I tell myself when I lay my head on the pillow can I look myself in the mirror and say, I've done everything I could possibly do today in the moment that I'm in, because every day is different, different challenges. I lay my head down and say, I did. I'll always give my best at everything. And then every morning I just wake up fresh, like, okay, let's go again. Like, let's go. It's a brand new day. Nothing in the past matters. It's all learning. It's all development. And today I'm a new person with a new outlook, with a new idea, with a new way, you know, freshness about life. And I don't know where that came from. I feel very humbled and happy that I have that mentality, but I think it is something you can cultivate in your life. Like if you just do your best in every little thing and and you realize that failures happen, you make mistakes, own it, take accountability and learn from it, then every day is a fresh new start to be better than you were the day before. 100%. I want to dig deep on this point. You said humble. Let's dig deep. And the reason why I want to dig deep is humble, hungry, buzzwords but I get what you've just said but with the humble part I'm going back to that Michelle Akers you could have been humble and just showing a respect in that environment on the pitch and off the pitch as well but you've got to be hungry to thrive the opportunity so where's that balance of humble and hungry could you just go in a bit more detail yeah and you just said the word respect and to me that's the key like for me there's something control the controllables you can only control your attitude your work ethic and respect. And for me, respect is massive because people think when you respect, you you bow down to somebody else or you give in to something else. To me, respect is, and I say it to my teams, myself, respect is to give 100% of yourself so that whatever you're up against, so me against Michelle Akers, if I don't give 100% of myself and be the best I can possibly be, then I'm not respecting her because she needs a worthy opponent to be her best. She needs a worthy opponent to win the World Cup to win the Olympics. My job might not be to pass her the ball that's going to win the Olympics or win the World Cup. But my job, if I'm in training, if I'm on the same pitch, if I'm her teammate in any capacity, 
is to make sure I'm my best every day so she can be her best every day. Because ultimately, if as a team and as a country, we're going to succeed, it doesn't matter how big or small your role is. You have a responsibility to respect the process, respect the game, respect the journey, respect yourself, respect others. And respect to me is giving everything you can so everyone around you can become better together. Did I tell you, everybody, I was excited to get Kelly on the show. My goodness, I'm loving this conversation already. Let's get back to the journey now. There's a reason why I'm curious when you're age of 23, when I was doing my research, I was like, oh, my goodness, like really young to finish a career. I'm going to call it career because of the dedication years beforehand, which people don't talk about. But you said already you had to adapt. May I ask like how you adapted at the age of 23 to your coaching journey and what, what were the hardships at the time? If, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Um, well, I first started adapting to my coaching journey at 13 for two reasons. Um, it was the first time I was in with the national team program. And like I said, I grew up in a place that didn't have soccer was not a big sport. We didn't have tons of coaches. So I felt very honored to be in our national team system. And when I came back to my community, I wanted to give back. So at 13, I started to run and manage my own soccer school for the kids in my community to show up to the pitch, invite everyone, literally went around neighborhoods and put flyers on doors and schools and just invited kids and just thought, like, just come to the pitch and let's learn soccer together. And I want to share with you what I've learned because I'm so fortunate that I got to go outside the state and learn it. Little did I know that tons of kids would show up and suddenly I was running a, a soccer school for hundreds of kids as a 13 year old. And I was hiring out my high school you know, teammates to come work with me. <laughs> so that taught me, that got me into coaching right away. Um, but because of that, and because of my first injury then came at 13, I realized right away that when you're injured is actually when you can learn the most about the game. So when you're not injured, you're so focused on your own performance. You're so focused on making mistakes. You're so focused on your coach yelling at you, uh, telling you what to do. You don't know. But when you're not playing, when you're injured and you're sitting on the sideline, you have absolutely no pressure. It's the exact moment to study the game, learn the tactics, listen to the coach, watch your teammates. So out of my, you know, 10 surgeries and all this that I went through, I always spent that time near my head coach, near my assistant coaches, near my teammates. I used to watch things like their interaction. Like when my head coach said something to a teammate, how did she react? And then when he said it to that teammate, how did she react? Why are they reacting different? What do they need as an individual on the pitch? They're two completely different human beings. They come from two different cultures. They're two different positions. So I really studied not only the tactics of the game, but how you manage a team, how you manage an ecosystem, how everyone needs something different. So from a young age, I was just being embedded with that, watching how everything operated rather than being fearful of having to perform on the pitch. And I think that that also really helped sort of guide me into coaching also wasn't really a career at the time. You weren't being paid to coach really. So I thought maybe I'd be a teacher one day. Um, but ultimately, by the time I grew up, coaching was an option and was a career. Okay, another time out. I've got to say these times because I need to dig deep again. Reflect on what you said by being near the head coach. How did that improve, you know, understanding about communication methods? You said listening, but the thing that I want to emphasize, because I can see you, the, the listeners can't, body language, like reflecting from even working with national teams. We're going a bit ahead of ourselves, but 
understanding people's body language of what somebody says, how vital is that as a skill? I think it's massive and and it's huge for people to understand that their body language affects everybody else around them. So even if you're in the most miserable mood, which everyone is allowed to be in and it's okay, it's part of life, just that tiny moment of smiling at someone and giving them that one second smile, that energy goes out into that world. That energy affects everyone around you. So I talk to people a lot who everyone has their grumpy friends, their grumpy teammates, their grumpy whatever colleagues. We all have those people in our life. And I, I always talk to people about the importance of just taking a moment to make eye contact, smile. It can be one second, but it will massively change the room and the energy and I do talk a lot with my hands now because I've worked overseas and my body language and the way I use my body to talk. When you can't speak the language, I think eye contact, your smile, the way you use your hands and your body and the way you interact in that space with each other, a very close space with each other can make a massive difference to getting, you know, your team and the people to trust you, which no one can perform without trust, to feel psychological safety that they're okay to just be authentically themselves in that moment uh, to make mistakes. I tell kids and players all the time, please make mistakes. You're only going to, you're only going to succeed if you make mistakes, like go out there and push yourself to the limit and see what you learn from it. And I think body language and your energy and the way you walk into a room and the way you say hello to everyone, those tiny, tiny little things are massive to, to get people to buy in and be part of the bigger project. Just to emphasize the point, I assume it's important for coaches to make mistakes too. Like, let's say talking hypothetically as an example, having one way of communicating at a half-time talk and it did not go well, learn from it and try another approach. Is that is that also the key with coaching you've learned along the years in that adaptability of approach? Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is so many people think coaches are like the finished article. But like a player's a human and a coach is a human. And we're all on a journey and we're all on a different journey at a different point in our journey. But every single one of us, every day, every day can grow and get better. So, so no coach, no leader, no manager, no nobody's a finished article. You're not like done growing and developing. So I think what's really important for managers is every day, every moment, every team, every player needs something different. So you have to really vary how you do things. But I think you need consistent principles and a consistent sort of ecosystem that you operate in. Because there is a time when you want to go extreme or undersell or oversell because you're trying to get an emotional buy-in. But if you do that too much, too often or at the wrong time, you're going to end up with no buy-in at all. So you have to be really connected to your people and connected to the individuals, the group, but actually the individuals. Because at every team talk at halftime, you are talking to a team, but often you're trying to get a unit or a group or a few specific people to really understand what you need out of them in that second half. So even though you're talking to a group, if I'm talking to certain players, I may have a softer touch, but I'm talking to other players, I may have a more direct touch. And we do a lot of psychological profiling to understand how people communicate, how they listen, how they learn, so that when we speak to them, they actually hear us. Because just because you're speaking the same language doesn't mean people hear you when you're communicating. Okay, I'm going to state the obvious here. How do you know when somebody's hearing you? But is that when the different type of like communication kicks in? So again, Talking to a whole group could be one message, but then going to one individual, just focusing on one skill or, I don't know, shadowing a player is the main sort of information exchange and forgetting about 
other parts. Is that what you mean? Because there's that always that saying there's listening and then there's hearing. I think when it comes to getting people to hear you, so many people speak because they want to be heard. They want whatever they're saying is so important and everyone needs to know what I'm saying. I think when you're leading, when you're managing and when you're driving performance, it has nothing to do with you. It's about what the person you need to influence their performance. What do they need to hear and how do they need to hear it? That's where one experience and sort of having the intuition and learning over the years how people communicate and listen and learn Two, spending lots of time with the individuals, which I don't think enough people probably do. They get with their team, they do team talks, they do this, they might speak to a player fist bumps, but like stop and have real conversations with your people, your staff and your players and understand what makes them feel valued, what makes them feel heard, what makes them perform. Everyone has, you know, different triggers in their life that they're that will lead them to performance or pull them away in fear. I think when you really have a conversation, you listen, you'll you'll hear the nuances. If you're listening to them to hear them, not to be ready to reply to them and not to be ready to show them your knowledge. Nobody cares how much you know. And I know everyone's heard this. They don't care. They care how much you care about them. And at that point, the connection happens. And like I said, we do do psychological profiling. I love to do that in all the places I work. Um, I think it's good with staff and players. And it's not like, oh, the psychology of the person. It's really like, how do they interact with other human beings? How do they work with other human beings? How do they think and how do they operate so that if I operate in one way and they operate the opposite, when we come together and we realize that I can meet them where they're at, I can speak at their language, at their pace, with the detail or non-detail that they need to hear it and then actually execute it. But one thing you did say beforehand was at the end of the day that the foundation level is everybody's on the same page with the principles. Now, I assume you mean that comes down to values. Is that correct? With that word principles used? Yeah, values, culture. Yeah, what is that principle going to be? And I think, you know, some big things that we talk about a lot at Lewis, but you know, that I try to bring into every organization I go into is the confidence to be authentically yourself. I think it's really, really important that we instill that in our culture, that every single human being is unique and special. I don't want you to change. I want you to come in and be yourself. We've recruited you. We've brought you in. We believe in you. And now every day, I want you to have the courage to keep making yourself better. There is no perfection. Are you brave enough to learn? Are you bold enough to strive for the next level of your own journey? And what's that going to be? Are you compassionate? Our culture is all about being compassionate. People are, have you, you never know what someone else is going through in life, in a day, in a week, in a moment, in a year. And I think it's really important that we're compassionate on ourselves. Like as a football player, when I retired, the last game of my career, it all ended. We're sitting at the middle of the field having a picture. I looked up into the stands and I'll never forget telling myself, you never stopped and enjoyed how good you were or how good you are. I spent my entire career beating myself up to be 1% better, 1% better, 1% better. Now, I positively beat myself up, but I still beat myself up. I can remember every mistake, but I can rarely remember the good things I ever did on the pitch. So there's a fine balance. It obviously drove me to be better and be my best, 
But it wasn't until that retirement, and I'm actually glad I retired at a young age and had this epiphany in this moment because I think it's helped me in coaching, is that compassion to like be proud of yourself. Stop at the end of the day and realize what you've achieved or what you're pursuing and what you're learning on that pursuit. You might never actually achieve it, but by going on the journey, it might lead you somewhere where it's like, oh my God, this is the dream I've always wanted, but I didn't know it because I've been chasing something that the world has told me to chase. And that's another one of our main principles about vulnerability, because the world tells us what to be. But if you can truly be vulnerable and believe in yourself that what you bring authentically is worthy of the world to love and connect with you and to be great and to be bold, that will lead you to wonderful connections. And I think that's the big picture that sort of pulls it all together is when you're actually connecting daily with the people that you work with about vulnerability, about confidence, about compassion, about courage, like you can do anything together. You can be unbreakable together. Just thinking of that full circle and bigger picture, there's just something that's just caught my thought now. And I've just learned in this conversation that you being a professional football player or you being a professional coach, both of those journeys were unknown because they weren't around. How has that been a strength throughout your journey? Reflect. I'm just really curious on that point because that's where I hear your drive because you're like, well, nobody's done it. I'll be the first. I'll be the best I can be. I think a lot of people give up because they fear of the unknown, but you've used it as fuel to drive you. Would you say that's a correct statement? It's just I've just realized this now, but I would love your thoughts of what I've just said. Yeah, it could be ignorance. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No, not at all. I don't think so. But carry on. I, I really, I think it's a huge strength to have if you look at it in that perspective or those goggles I say of outlook and personal development. So yeah, I'm going to put you back on the mic. When I think about why I've done what I've done in my career, um, if you can call it a career, you know, it's it's all I've put a lot of different parts and pieces. And I think one key thing that people think I've been in football my whole life, but I've walked away from the game four distinct times to go learn other things, not ever knowing I would actually come back, which I think is really important. I went into worlds that I had no knowledge and no experience in because I wanted to learn and I wanted to challenge myself and I wanted to check my comfort zone and be out of my comfort zone. And every time I did that, my my whole ecosystem, my whole life, everything grew because I was put in a situation that I knew nothing and I had to figure it out and I had to learn. So I think what really sort of drives me and why my connection to women's football is so strong is no one has ever really mastered developing the women's game. Nobody in the world has has mastered developing the women's game. And I don't need to be the first. I don't need to be the second. I don't need to be the last. I want to be part of this journey where I challenge wherever I go. I challenge the ecosystem. I challenge the journey. I make people think differently. So when we finally really develop women's opportunities, sport and professional sport, that we do it to the best possible level we can. And to me, I truly believe when we do that with the right mindset and the mentality and people have come from this background, we will ultimately change sport forever. So what that looks like, what that means, I don't know. I don't care. I just want to pursue it. And when my head hits the pillow for the last time, I'll know I have done something that was worthy of the journey and the experience. Okay, I need to say this. From those four situations when you left and came back, how did it make you, one, a better person, but also a better coach and I don't mean just like X's and O's I mean just a coach in general in business and in football 
Yeah, it kind of started because, um, you know, as a coach, as a female coach, let's maybe put a little bit of nuance on that. How many times I was traveling, getting on planes, being at airports. And when you're on planes and airports, people always ask you, and if you're an American, what do you do? And when I say I'm a coach, people say, oh, what do you do for your real job? And that was so ingrained in me from the moment I started coaching, where I started coaching at a professional level at that time, a professional level. I had I got my A license quite quickly in my career. Like I was a professional person and a professional coach. And still to this day, in certain countries at certain times as a woman, if I say I'm a coach, people say, so what do you do for your real job? So I just I had I I didn't want to be identified as a coach. I actually went through a phase where I would travel and people would ask me what I did and I would come up with random things like I'm a skydiving instructor. I'm a teacher. I'm a yoga instructor. Just to change the conversation. And when I said anything else, people wanted to have this long dialogue with me and I had to make up lots of stories, but it was kind of fun, you know. But when I said coach, it just ended with, so what's your real job? And I that was a real big struggle with identity is why is coaching, why is it not seen as a profession? And I think that also drove me a bit is like professional people going into coaching, it is a profession and we should make sure that we hold it to a professional standard and that the people who are operating in around coaches hold us and hold the game to a professional standard. That's really, really important to me and probably because of this. So I left the game many times thinking I'm never really going to have a profession in in coaching because people don't see it as a profession. So let me go try something else. What else can I be in life? That was one. And two, coaching is brutal. Every night, every weekend, every morning, long hours, all the holidays, you miss everything with your family. So hard with partners and relationships and people who don't understand that you have to go to football again. Do you have to go to every game? (laughs) Do you have to go to every training session? So it becomes a really complicated ecosystem, this whole football thing. So I got out and I tried four distinctly different things. But what it all came full circle to, if I'm honest, is everyone needs a coach. Everyone. Senior executives, middle management, straight out of school, being an intern, your first job, your second job, your 12th job, your ninth job. Everybody needs a coach. Everybody needs a mentor. Everyone needs someone to challenge and support them at the role they're trying to get better at, at the time they're in it, in the moment they're in. And I realized how powerful coaching was. I realized how powerful my skills in coaching are, that I could now go into any industry in impact management, impact leadership, impact strategy, because for any organization to work, you have to get everyone on the same page. You got to drive them towards these big visions. You have to have processes and structures and systems that operate every day at the finest detail. You have to constantly be communicating, constantly be listening, constantly giving reflection and review and feedback. And that's what we do in coaching every moment of every single day. So it really did empower me to be a leader in back in football. Um, whether you want to call me a coach or whatever it is these days, I view myself as coaching the coaches and coaching the players and coaching the ecosystem and coaching the culture around whatever I'm trying to do. One of my podcast special guests actually wrote a book called Everybody's a Coach, called uh, Coach Michael Burt, who was a basketball girls 
basketball coach. And imagine the stigma he had. And he was winning with this team for four years straight. Uh, and it was only, I'm sharing this story with you because I hopefully I want coaches to feel the fulfillment when you understand that word winning as a coach or how you define it. Here's one story I'd like to share. He shared on the podcast. He would make sure all the team players read the seven effective habits from Stephen Covey before they did a practice. So it's not just about the X's and O's. It's about, as you said, the principles, the mentality, the respect, the humble, the hungry. Um, wow, what an amazing conversation. And thank you for your vulnerability too. But I want to now sort of pivot this conversation. I know there's one more question. This is vital for coaches because it's something that I admired from your career journey doing my research. I've seen you've worked in the United States, Morocco, um, Afghanistan. Now you're in the UK and Lewis. Like, out of interest, how has understanding or being mindful of different cultures have supported your coaching, not just philosophy, but more of approach for people? I think you don't know what you don't know until you learn it. So I've now learned that everything I go into, I'm going in knowing I'm ignorant accepting it, owning it, and asking lots of questions up front. Because regardless of the football and the X's and O's, I mean, distances, space, gaps, triangles, that that translates across any language. But cultural nuances of how people live their life, what they value, um, the meaning of time in a day, uh, I think Americans, we have a bad habit of just grinding, grinding, grinding every minute of every single day and learning to respect other people's time and energy and how they spend that and when they perform and when they rest. Some people say, oh, well, that's lazy. It's No, it's not. It's respect. Like it's respect because that's how they live their life. And we could learn something from that. So I think in the big picture, going across all these cultures, it, I've learned probably more than I've imparted. That's the true, like I've, I've been very humbled and learned and listened and paid attention. And I think the biggest things I've really learned is when you first go in, like ask a lot of questions, be ignorant, you know, be dumb, be the dumbest one in the room. Honestly, like people always want to be the smartest in the room. I'm a big, big fan of being the dumbest in the room and hiring as many smart people around me. <laughs> if I'm the dumbest in the room, we're going to be okay. That's how I view it. That's how I want to go get smarter people and put them around me. And I think when you go into different cultural contexts, everybody is smarter than you. You need a lot of other people around you. You need to be humble. You need to go on the journey. I, I think it really teaches you to observe and to assess and to think strategically before you just run in and try to change everything things might not need to be changed but i think people think they're only making a difference if they're changing things if they're being transformative if if someone can see their work i really i know when things are working i don't need everyone to see my work i love to be behind the scenes and sort of cultivating it and i know as a foreigner i'm going to leave that country at some point i want the people in and around to be able to operate at the highest level possible for them without me and that actually started in the U.S. coaching with teams because you just never know when you're not going to have your job. Sports are so vulnerable. You could lose your job tomorrow. So if your job and your worth doesn't leave a legacy, then what did you do there? If, if the group you're working with has to start over completely and you haven't imparted your wisdom and you haven't left them better than you found them, what was the point of ever putting you in that environment? So I think it's just so important that 
we really try to make the people around us, we support the people around us to always be the best they can be. And that way you're significantly insignificant because at any time in sport, you can be gone in an instant. If you don't mind, I'd like to do a really meaningful case study just because I've met, well, spoken to a few times on Zoom with the other Cleda Papal. Like she came on the podcast and blew me away. And I even remember relating to the Athens Women's Football Summit at the Greek restaurant right at the end. I asked you like, what you learned as a coach at that period of time, forget about the football, just how the country was at the time, Afghanistan and the situation. May I ask, would you mind just sharing an insight, particularly that experience and maybe how Khalida, you know, inspired you and vice versa, that relationship? Because for me, it's one of my favourite podcasts because it taught me about what real self-leadership's about when you're a captain and how it can actually change lives. And I mean that. I don't use that word because I, I kid you not, Kelly, I'm just sharing my story. This is so true. When I saw the tweet of the plane they were getting into, that military plane to Australia, I was just like, I just froze that the next 30 minutes of like, this is real. This isn't just motivational stuff like what I'm sharing on this podcast. It's real of how a captain of a football team can inspire the teammates um, when, when, when things are life and death in a way. So I don't want to get too emotional, but I, I want people to, feel the realness of how football is in the football industry. It's not, I don't know, cloud nine stuff. It's on the ground, quite inspiring and moving as well. Yeah. I mean, see if I can sum up the Afghanistan experience, but I think some of the things like, I, I think it started with my ignorance. I'm an American working with Afghanistan. I know that growing up in my country, Afghanistan was talked about in a certain way. So I know that I have biases and ignorances and I don't understand the culture. So I made sure from day one, every morning at breakfast, I probably drove Halita nuts. And she wasn't speaking that great at English at the time. So you can only imagine trying to learn about this really complicated culture in broken English for year, you know, the first year as we got to know each other and understand each other. I felt like I was asking really dumb questions and ignorant questions, but I'm so glad I did. Because by being vulnerable early on and learning, it made me better with them, which helped us build trust much quicker, which helped us actually, you know, achieve a lot of the things we achieved. And if people people look at that coaching career with Afghanistan, it's not like we went and won a million championships. So, but that's not what it's about. And that's one reason I took that job is football is about empowering human beings to be the best they can be coaching life football people are so passionate about football it's such a powerful tool to like hold them to account and teach them to be their best and I'll never forget our first meeting with the team I had them do an exercise and once again just for perspective me speaking English maybe a little bit of English in the room Halita tried to translate with her broken English you can only imagine how complicated it was to build a culture and to build unity and trust when absolutely very little language communication could happen. So it took a lot of investment from all of us. Um, but I'll never forget, I asked them, what's your why? Because after my little bit of talking with Alida, I'm thinking, why are we even playing football in Afghanistan? What What is football going to do to change these women's lives? Like, they should be going to school. They should be you know, getting out, they should, you know, it's like, why, why are we focusing on football? It's, it's not important. That's really how I felt like football's not important. Little did I know how important football was. 
Um, so their why was they wanted to play football to inspire the women of their nation to leave their home. This is what was written on a piece of paper to inspire the women of their nation to leave their home, to walk out of their home. How do you understand that from an outside perspective? That's not why I coach football so women will walk out of their home. I obviously didn't understand it. It took a lot of years. I learned along the way. But from the very first time we met with them, they wouldn't talk. They wouldn't ask questions in meetings. And I, I had to ask why, because I'm used to interaction and I want people to engage. They're not trained to talk. Women are trained to be silent. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Don't speak if a man is in the room. And I had men on staff, so I had to learn that. And we had to talk about that. And we had to dialogue about, you can speak in this room with this team in front of these men. It's okay. And I had to teach the men how to respect them and to show them mutual respect so the women could understand that men respect them for who they are as a football player, as a professional football player. There's lots of nuances and how we develop this culture. And my big, big, big piece of developing the culture was a simple word of trust, which I know people think, oh, that's probably so easy. But these women in this culture didn't trust their neighbor, didn't trust their teammates. They could look across the room and say, she's from that tribe. She's from that tribe. She's from that tribe. I don't trust her. I couldn't see it. I didn't see the difference. I couldn't tell the tribe. So we had to break down this tribalism. We had to break down trust. We had to build empowerment communication. We did tons of things. I had them coaching the team. We learned how to defend as a unit to the Macarena, literally in the classroom with the music, doing the dance, everyone in it. Because I had to show them how distances and unity and rhythm work together, but I couldn't communicate it. So I heard the Macarena randomly and I thought, Tomorrow morning, our team brief is going to be the Macarena. And I ended up with the whole team. We had the back line, the midfield, the strikers. We're in a classroom doing the Macarena, blah, blah, blah. Lots of funny stories about how we came together. But at the end of the day, I never imagined that our unity and our, you know, fight for equality and in fight really just for a woman in their country to walk out of their home would unite them enough that when up against the Taliban who were at their doors with guns searching for them wanting to kill them that they were brave enough as a group to get together and fight their way into the airport in order to escape their country never ever would I have thought that what we do on a football pitch in a classroom with pieces of paper talking about set pieces would ever cultivate a, a country of women to fight their way through the Taliban in order to escape the country. And for us, I think that day, the same day, the same pictures, the same moment when we knew they took off, it was like, that was their world cup for that moment. Like the, what they had to do to break through barriers and boundaries and Taliban guns and fighters and be beat to the ground and stand in the sewers and literally fight for their life to hope they got to a doorway. And then we just kept telling them when you get to the doorway, no matter what they say, just stand at the doorway, keep fighting, push your way in, battle, 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 do whatever it takes to get yourself in that airport. Just if you have to climb the wall, if you have to scream, yell, fight, compete, do whatever it takes to get you and your siblings and your family into that airport. And at that point, we'll, we can all breathe and be strategic again. But you're so close. You've been in a sewer for eight hours. You've been in a sewer for three days. Freaking hold your hand in the air. We're sending a soldier to find you. And when they find you, get into that airport. And I'll just 
I'll never forget that. It felt like we were coaching them to win a game from a million miles away over text message, all of us, you know, around the world, just like fighting and pushing them to do it. And who would have ever thought that they would trust us enough to, to take that step and escape from their country together. And, you know, I never thought coaching them and coaching football would lead to something like that, but it just shows you, it shows you the power of teamwork and unity and vulnerability and caring and being compassionate about other people that it can lead to something you never imagined it would lead to. I'm being so truthfully, Kalida said on the podcast relating to this story that she just applied all her coaching principles, learning from you and the team around her. Like she just treated it like a game as well. And that's why I get so moving on this story because it's real. And you talked about earlier when you were on the football pitch, it was your final game and you didn't embrace those moments. I'm going to put you on the spot now. From that moment, how proud were you as a coach or just a human being? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I To me, that that changed my life forever. That showed me how valuable being in sport is, how valuable being in football is. Like I said, I've walked away many times. So it gave me a new spirit to be like, okay, this fight is worth it because you never know what life you're going to change. And yet for them, that was massive. But for another player that could be getting over a mental health issue or battling a parent's death or um, just being dropped from the team, they always thought they'd be a part of like sport means so much to people. We have to respect that. We have to understand that part of them as a human and their journey and the passion. And we have to make sure we really, really take care of them. It's such a vulnerable place, sport. It's so vulnerable. And so many people take advantage of players and coaches and the environment and the ecosystem that those of us that are in it, that get it and understand and care, we have to take care of it. We have to fight to do what's right for everybody that's in it to have the best and longest career possible if they can, you know, whatever that is in their life and their journey. The longest career might be one year. The longest career might be 20 years. Both of those are equally important and should be equally respected. Absolutely. And I want to just pivot this conversation. I've got my notes from the Athens Women's Football Summit. I did take a few. (laughs) And I'll be honest, as you probably tell on my podcast, I've always tried to implement equality through the podcast with showcasing awesome people in the sports industry. But I find equality is like a real big buzzword at the moment. And I'm I'm still figuring out like what's the best definition of equality in sport, but let's say football in particular. And so far you've got the best definition. This is from what you said at Athens. You said this, and I want you to um, reflect on what you said. You said equality isn't the men's team have got a bag of peanuts and the women's team have this type of protein shake. Equality is everyone at a club, organization and industry is on the same journey to find a better way to govern the game. For me, like, that is the best definition. I'll just love your thoughts. You've been really high driven now, but I just would love your thoughts on that definition because for me, I found the answer. It took me years on this podcast to find the real answer, but I would love your thoughts of what I've said or what you said at Athens and like, what's your thought process from those words and how are you trying to apply them to the work you do at Lewis or in the football industry in general? Yeah, I think equality to me is when people are governing the game equally. So however, whatever your processes, your structures, your strategies would be to manage and govern one side of the game for the best purpose of the game, for the people, for for everyone to grow and develop and to be the best they can within it, you apply those same principles to the other side of the game or 
any side of the game. Let's even be honest right now. There's not just men's and women's sports anymore. There's so much diversity around sport and inclusion for all. So I think we all just have to think different. And I think one of my biggest frustrations about equality and governance is people just feels like so many governing bodies and organizations just say, oh, we need to do this. And I always ask the question, what problem are we trying to solve? Where are we trying to go? What strategically are we trying to do to move the needle? If we know where we're trying to go, what are the gaps? Why are we not there? You know, pull the pieces together, look at the journey and the puzzle, and then figure out where the starting point is. Then figure out what the rules and the structure around it need to be. And people believe that when they create something, it's gonna, it needs to last a million years. What if the structure lasts for two years? Because that's what the game needs at that moment. The women's game at this moment might need some structures and some rules for the next two years. And then it's going to evolve. And then at that point, we need to rethink it because we'll be in a totally different place. So instead of keeping those same rules and structures for 50 years, what if we all thought about on a smaller scale, how do we keep evolving the game to actually solve the problems we want and bring everybody we can on the journey? Because setting rules for one league, implying them on another league, putting them three tiers down, everyone's in a completely different situation. So why are we making rules and structures and strategies that are all encompassing and we're all going to have to live by them and we're all going to be miserable in two years and we're going to wish we would change them. I just think as you develop something, this is where I think women's sport can do something completely different because nobody has figured out how to develop the game. So let's figure it out. Let's do it right. Let's get the governance right. Let's make sure it's inclusive Let's make sure it brings everyone on the journey. Let's make sure that people make money off of it. That's important. It's a business. We need to make money. People need to have a livelihood. They need to pay their bills. They need to have sustainability out of it. Sporting careers are short. But if we do it right and we bring everyone on the journey and we learn lessons and then we apply them and learn lessons and then apply them, just like you do every day in sport, you don't set a game strategy and talk in September and talk about it in April. You talk about it every single day, all the details over and over and over, and you figure out what works and what are the processes of success and how do you repeat those over and over consistently. And we need to do that and apply that as we're developing sport. It can't be a one size fits all model that lasts 50 years. 100% what you've said, and you've got me thinking now, but just for the listeners going, okay, Kelly, I hear what you said. How can I apply myself? Because you said one thing again in Athens, and honestly, like, music to my ears because there's something about football industry where people think oh it's this awesome place like your fans of football in the football industry where actually you said something really important really it's having the tough conversations to develop the game forward and not put as as a british saying put them under the rug so i'm just curious for the listener going okay i've listened to all this listen to kelly and ed how can i apply myself to that two-year strategy or improve the game like what guidance tips would you give to the listeners so we're getting the right people in the room but right like being part of this journey for the right reasons not just because i'm a passionate football fan i think the key is that the football industry is really hard it's got some disgusting parts to it it's corrupt it's got all the bad and the negative things about it and i think because people love it and there's so much passion that people want to hide that 
that stuff's not happening. There's not abuse. There's not corruption. It's we treat everyone perfectly. There's no racism. And this is where I think everyone, fans, stakeholders, uh, whether you're part of a club or you're not, whether you love football or you don't, the most important conversations are about how we ensure the human beings are progressing on the journey through sport. And I think that so many times people don't want to have the conversations where if there's an issue, if there's a challenge, if something is not right, we need to speak about it. We need to bring it to the public front. We need to hold course. Now, sometimes you need to go public, but first within your organizations, asking the hard questions, holding people to account and having those dialogues. And I know how difficult it is in sport because sport will be the first one that brushes you to the side, but I think it's changing. And I think that more and more people who speak up and talk about the things they're unhappy with in sport and we do it together and we keep dialoguing about it and you keep asking people questions, not telling them what to do, not forcing them to change things, but really asking the questions of why are we doing what we're doing? Is this how you want to be viewed? Is this right? Is this the legacy you want to leave? I think eventually people actually come on board and say, you know what? I don't know why we do that. We do that because it's just always been done that way. And I think that is such a consistent message in sport and football is I've never really thought about it. You know, why do we do that? And I think the more strategic people can be about asking the really hard questions and then holding people account to dialogue about it. You don't have to have the answers. That's really important. None of us have to have the answers, but the better questions we ask, the more we'll be able to evolve the game together. So like you've just said, you've said it a fair few times, like, I've just learned as a thing you said, the power of questions, like, like you've just said, it's all about the questions and then you get the answers, but how do we apply that into positive action? I get your point of saying, I'm just, again, I'm going to go deep. You, you, you're giving me like the hook and bait, but I'm just curious of how do we turn meaningful conversations that, that are the hard ones, ask those big questions from your point of view, you've been in the game nearly 20 years, you've seen the dark side, you've seen the positive side, you've seen the life and death side, meaning the Afghanistan uh, example. How do we implement it? And this goes to the governance, I think, but how do we implement good action? And I am going to bring in Lewis FC. I'm a huge, huge fan of them. Like Karen Dobre is like, she's been on the show and I just love her energy. And when I say her as a case study, if you saw her on the street, you wouldn't believe she was at a football club. But then... She, in the foot when I was there at Lewis, she's the one connecting the fans. She's the one who put in a flower bed in between the tunnel to make it more interactive. She's the one putting these lamps to make it a bit more warmy than an old fashioned pub feel in your clubhouse. Like these subtle differences is inequality in action. Karen, I'm giving you a shout out, but this is true. I said to her when she left, she makes a uniqueness of the club without she realizing through her action. So I love your thoughts on Karen, but also for me, there's a perfect example of words questions and action you know and making change um you don't need to agree what i said but i love your thoughts of what i've said <laughs> no i i do agree i think equality and that's one thing that i've even learned coming to lewis because when people say what is equality i mean it's such a hard question to answer but what lewis does and lives in the actions what equality is is diverse people coming into the sport coming into the club coming into the organization and us really valuing that you you can hate football we want you here we want to know why you hate football we want to know what your dislikes are we want to know why you think that way and why you feel that way because we want to help you change that or evolve from that or maybe love football or maybe still hate it but recognize its value in your community 
And how can you challenge us to increase our value for all people, the ones who love it, the ones who hate it, and everyone in between? So I'm a big, big believer that the club and all organizations need to go out and find people who've never been in their industry. Because what happens is in your industry, as I said before, everyone just goes, oh, yeah, that's how we've always done it. But when you bring people from the outside in and they start asking questions, the people on the inside go, why do we do that? You're right. That doesn't make sense. And a lot of the things that don't make sense are HR, strategy, governance. They don't make sense in football. The structures and the rules sometimes don't make sense. Who came up with this? And when people from the outside, they come in, they're like, why does football do it that way? The world governance does it this way. Why do you guys do it that way? We have to ask each other these questions. So Karen is invaluable to the club. And I don't think she'll ever know how much she brings to Lewis because it goes back to this identity thing. Is she a football person? Is she not a football person? It doesn't matter. She's Karen. She's Karen and she's going to be the best at whatever organization she goes into. It's not about having this identity in or out of football. And ultimately, when it comes to actions and it comes to actions in sport and the questions, I think the biggest thing you have to realize is first, you're going to spend, like me, 20 years smashing your head into a wall. <laughs> in sport, it moves slow. And so I think people also have to understand, and I've had to come to this point. I mean, sometimes I just want to like take it all and just run. Come on, guys. We can like get 10 years on this if we just go. It takes time. You have to be consistent. You have to stick to your principles and your values. A strategic plan. Know what you're trying to get to. Know what principles get you there based off experience and life and learning. There's certain things that in your life have helped you be successful. We want consistent success. So those principles apply in any organization, any market, any industry. So you have your strategic plan. You have your consistent principles. And you always are asking why. It's the most important question. Why are we doing that? Maybe we know the answer and we go, why are we doing that? Maybe we don't and we stop and think about it. If you want efficient and effective and accountable decision-making, when you ask the question why, people should be able to answer it. And if they can't, then it's not efficient and effective and accountable decision-making. And if we can't get there, then we need to ask ourselves why. Do we need a process? Do we need roles and responsibilities? Do we need clarity? What are we missing in order to drive things and when you start trying to change a whole industry of governance, you're talking about your club, you're talking about leagues, you're talking about local governing bodies, you're talking about national, international governing bodies. It's going to be a long, slow slog, but keep educating yourself. Keep reaching out to people in your industry and outside who do different things. I have noticed in my world, I spent a lot of years just coaching and suddenly I realized, well, when I get out and start thinking about the governance and marketing and comms and commercial Oh, this is, ah, oh, so educate yourself to become better in the industry and the whole ecosystem so you can ask good questions at the right time to the different stakeholders. You don't have to know the answers. That's my final piece. You don't have to know the answers. Be on the journey with lots of other people to figure it out together. It needs collaboration and conversation and dialogue with people who are passionate about it and care and people who want to challenge and fight you. You'll learn a lot by the people who come in and challenge and fight you. Many people stop at that point and are blocked. I don't want people to challenge and fight me. Come on, bring it on. Challenge and fight me because you're good asking me questions that when I can answer them, you won't be able to challenge and fight me anymore. So keep asking those questions. You're educating me. I'll go figure it out and then we'll be able to move the process forward. Final thing with regards to this point. 
how vital with the governance, the questioning, listening, is that self-leadership component? Because yes, I could self-learn all that knowledge, but honestly, I come to the conclusion after 300 odd podcasts, the ones who are in the industry for the right reasons are leaders within themselves. That doesn't mean they're the captain, they haven't got a label as a leader, they're just people who are either well-knowledged in that particular area, or they set the example and tone. Like, just from your 20 years, how have you seen leadership have a role? And even you as a leader, I'm putting you on the spot because you are. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, but did you ever think of, you said you didn't like the brand or call yourself a, a coach. You said this earlier in the conversation, but now would you say you're proud that you are a leader with others for this movement? Um, I love your thoughts on leadership and why I think it's vital um, from a career development, but also women's football as well. Yeah, leadership such a complex thing isn't it and people think leaders are always the one out front um maybe banging the drum or driving people forward but i actually think the leader or the way i lead um is the person who i call leading on a 45 degree angle <laughs> so sounds so silly to people I'll be like what leading on a 45 degree angle because if you face somebody straight on it's really difficult to engage and build trust it feels very con you know conflict and you're looking at them dead in the eye and if you're right behind them it feels like you're just pushing them but you're not engaged they can't see you they have no sense of you they just sort of feel like there's something behind shoving them forward into it so for me leading on a 45 degree angle sometimes just in their periphery you're just in their periphery they know you're there they know you care they know you're going to challenge and support them they know you're not going to let them fail and they know that you're going to take accountability for their mistakes until they're trained enough and developed enough to take accountability for themselves. But you're not going to leave them hanging. You're not going to stab them in the back. You've invited them on your team or they're given to you and they're on your team. It's your job as a leader to protect them and support them and drive them and help them be better. The other side of leadership is the person must help themselves. You cannot drag someone to where they want to go. And I always talk to people, you have to meet them where they're at. And that is really difficult because I want to be 100 miles ahead and they're starting 300 miles back. How do I figure out where to meet them? And how do I take them on the journey to where I want to go? So there's a lot of things around leadership, but I think there's a couple key things. The keeper of the vision. When you have a strategic plan, the leader is the keeper of the vision. Things will go left, things will go right, things will go backwards. But if you just keep driving everyone to that long-term vision, it's hurting goldfish, hurting cats, and you're nudging and you're pushing, but you're sort of keeping everyone, like just everyone keep taking small steps towards the vision. Support them on a 45 degree angle. They can see you, they can feel you, you're in their life, they, you care, you're with them. You're not pushing them. You're not pulling them. You're not in conflict with them. You're taking full accountability and you're going to own every decision because you're the leader, not them. You're the leader. Whatever they do is because of you dropping the ball, not them. You can deal with them behind the scenes, but out in front of everyone else, you take full accountability and responsibility. You're transparent and you have those hard conversations. And the last little piece of that is meet them where they're at. Meet them where they're at. They're a human being. And every single day, you have to be aware enough and compassionate enough 
and strong enough in yourself to meet another individual where they're at on that day in order to keep them moving in the process. My goodness, I hope people are taking notes. Wow, I need to re-listen to that piece again within my personal development. So I'm super grateful, Kelly, on that point with regards to leadership. Reflecting of your career now, like, except the ups and downs, like, what have you have enjoyed the most from your coaching career or working women's football, like, looking back right now? Uh, I always say champions succeed in chaos. Champions succeed in the chaos and sport is chaotic and life is chaotic. And I, what I'm most proud about is you could drop me into any place at any time in any chaos. And I really feel like I can manage the situation and bring people to a better place in space. Um, and I think, yeah, reg- regardless of wins and losses. And I think that that's something I'm really proud of because I know how difficult it is I know how complicated it is to work with such diverse people in such diverse situations, especially when it's chaotic. And I take a lot of pride in knowing, and I think building all these years of self-confidence that put me any place, anytime, anywhere, give me any project and we'll find a way. Like I just, I have a never quit, no excuses mentality and we will solve it and we will work on it and we will get it to the next stage um, and we'll do it together. It won't be me. I can't do things alone and I'm not that great, but I can do it by pulling people together and figuring out strengths and weaknesses and driving the team forward. Absolutely. I can tell it's your tonality. That's what's killer on this conversation. I love it. It's There's the drive. It's not what you actually say sometimes. It's the purpose and tonality. Wow. As always, though, Kelly, I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. You've provided, you know, case studies, purse experience, but I really, really, really want you to be honest of like, three tips to actually help people after listening to this to really pursue a career in the football industry like what real three tips would they be feel free to recap but you've you've given sort of the good the bad the ugly work in this industry but I want these three tips to be the most honest to your experience but also the truthfulness of this industry too well the first thing I think about when people say they want to join the sports industry or the football industry is are you sure (laughs) it is uh it is a tough industry. It's a really tough industry. And I think the honest truth of the tough industry is you have to have really understanding people in your life, family, friends, partners, who get it and understand it. And I think that starts with you having very open conversations about your passion for it and why you do it and why you're spending all this time away from them. Because ultimately what happens is football becomes your number one priority, even though all through life we're told that family and friends and religion and culture and all these other things should be our top priority. But unfortunately, if you go into sport at a high level, the sport has to be your top priority because you're managing so many people with so many 1% details that you have to be all in in order to be successful at it. So the first thing is, is, Do you really want to do that? Are you willing to put in all those sacrifices and for how long? And, you know, what do you want from the journey as well? A lot of people just go into sports because they want money and fame and fortune. Like, I think if you're going to go into the sports industry, think about a more holistic, what are you really trying to capture from sports? Because that will make it more fulfilling. Because at some point, some point it's so frustrating that if that's the only reason you're in it, you'll most likely be unhappy or walk away from it. The other thing is I think you really have to find your authenticity, your purpose. 
like what's so important in life is, is your purpose. Why are you getting out of bed every day? Why are you waking up? Why are you doing what you're doing? Like, if you can't answer that question, take some time and really think about it. And for me, I could ask people this about their careers. Why, you know, what are the values and the purpose of your industry or your company or your organization? People will quickly start writing things down. They know exactly. They've been ingrained with whatever organization they work in. This is our purpose. And then I say, what's your personal purpose? What do you do as a human being every day? Why do you get out of bed? People never think about it. They can't write anything down. They're totally blank. So if you're going to be successful at anything in life, sport or beyond, like, what do you want as a human being every single day? Well, what is just your purpose when you get up? And for me, my purpose is very clear to me. Cultivate the place and space for the people around me to be, to pursue their best self in their life, to be as successful as they could possibly be. That's my purpose. Cultivate the place and space for others to be really successful. That's what drives me. That's what gets me out of bed. That's what excites me. And after you found your purpose, I think the third one is you, you, you have to be bold, you have to be brave, and you have to be yourself. Never try to be somebody else because you'll never be it. Who are you really? And can you stand on those values, on that every single day when faced with the most horrific things and the biggest challenges? Can you really, really, truly say you love yourself? You care for yourself. You take yourself seriously. You respect yourself. You treat yourself professionally. Like if you don't care about you, if you're not doing the things for you, how can you ever do purpose for others? How can you ever have a career? How can you ever drive things forward? So people talk about self-care and this and people ho-hum about it, but absolutely like if you don't care and take care of yourself, how can you do anything in this world? Because it's way too complicated. People say life is easy. They've lied to you. Life is really freaking hard. <laughs> so prep yourself for it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought the self-care bit because you've used care throughout this whole conversation in different avenues of your coaching, the care with players, the care with the environment. So with regards to like a football industry and improving it. So yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that right at the end. Wow. Um, as I said, like out of interest, Kelly, how can people interact with you online? Where are the best avenues to follow you, interact, follow your awesome wisdom? Like where are the best places to go? I'm not great on social media. I'm not, this is not my world. Um, I'm quite consumed in my day-to-day -day life, but uh, I am on LinkedIn. If you want to look me up or ask any questions, more than happy to answer and, and engage. Also on Twitter, um, my handle is AFF. WNT for coach Afghanistan women's national team. Um, and those are my only social media areas. I really try to stay off social media. <laughs> well, I will put them there because I should follow it, particularly on LinkedIn, because you do other podcasts, you share your real thoughts where there needs to be change. And even that's how when I checked out to profile, I was like, Kelly, we've got to improve <laughs> this. But I know you're so busy behind the scene, but to, to literally follow the work you're doing there or you know, the high performance stuff, check out Kelly on LinkedIn and it'll be with regards to the show notes. But on a personal, personal level, Kelly, it's been such a joy rocking the mic with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. I really enjoyed it. I love your energy. Keep up the good work. My goodness, what an unbelievable podcast chat from Kelly. And if you're not pumped as much as I am, you should re-listen to this again. Forget about having a coffee this will give you the fix you need to just be energetic with regards to the work you do or you want to do in the sports industry. I'm really serious. Like, for me, 
no joke, I wish I had this podcast when starting my sports career journey, particularly with regards to being humble, hungry, but having that respect with regards to your competition or the sports industry itself. There are so many aspects of this conversation which I learned so much. I think the first bit for me, bearing in mind I've sort of seen the pieces of this story really grow is with regards to the Khalida Papal and the Afghanistan team, you know, managing to escape from Afghanistan and get to Australia. I've managed to like speak to the people behind the scenes and Kelly was one of them and you just have no idea what I've learnt from it of about certain topics that have influencing me right now, such as leadership, such as really acknowledging the football ecosystem. I've always wanted this podcast to be a self-development tool, but not just a tool to get a job in sport. Because like Kelly said as a perfect example, she never knew that doing the Macarena with regards to a coaching idea to help them with regards to meeting the Women's Afghanistan national team, understand communication, understand formation, but most importantly how football can actually help a team come together in sort of, as I said in the podcast, a life and death situation. And this is to me how football can be such a powerful tool. Now, I have to admit, Again, doing a timeout, reviewing this podcast. This is a really extreme situation. I hope it doesn't happen, to be honest. But I want to emphasize this story because it shows that when we improve our knowledge, when we ask effective questions, when we listen more, when, like Kelly said, we act the most dumbest in the room and, like she said, really understand and learn from other people, other cultures, it really is how we grow in the sports industry. And if you can get that and apply what I've said and get real-life experience in those situations, the better sport industry professional you're going to be. Because I have to, again, be honest with Kelly and relating to my sports career journey, there are periods that working or pursuing a career in sports industry is tough. I have to admit, this element of my sports career journey, meaning doing the podcast, is what I enjoy doing. I think you can tell that. I wouldn't have been doing this over eight years and doing over 300 podcasts, but... Relating this to you, I really want you to write down the three biggest learning lessons from this podcast and how you're going to apply this to your own sports career development. Because Kelly taught me so much and without a doubt taught you a lot. And I just want you to now put this into practice because if you don't do that, it's just useless knowledge. And I want this knowledge to be you know, applied with action to your growth. So on that note, do that exercise, write your three biggest learning lessons, write them down and then put them into action today and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Kelly said, to be successful in sport or in life or in business, find your authenticity and your purpose. The moment you wake up every day, if you don't have a purpose, really take the time to create it then be bold and then be brave and then be yourself.